Chemical Watch podcast. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. Hello and welcome to this week's news podcast hosted by members of the Chemical Watch team. I'm Kate Lowe, Global Managing Editor at Chemical Watch, and for today's episode, I am joined by our Emerging Markets reporter, Ginger Harvey, North America Managing Editor, Terry Highland, and Deputy Editor, Nick Hazelwood. The subjects we'll be discussing today include the latest developments following new President Joe Biden's decision to direct the US EPA and other federal agencies to review and consider rescinding regulations and policies is issued in the last four years. We'll also be taking a look at food contact materials and the big developments expected in the sector during 2021. But first, we'll start with Israel, which has been developing a draft law that will establish a national inventory of industrial chemicals and set out processes for risk assessment and management. Chemical Watch learned last week that the government expects the draft law to be approved by the end of 2021. Currently, the use of industrial chemicals in Israel is only partially regulated, with responsibility for these regulations distributed across various government ministries. The consequence of that partial regulation is that chemicals that are restricted or banned for use in other countries around the world can be found in use in Israel. One example is perfluorooctanoic acid, which is banned globally, but still used in materials in Israel, according to the country's Ministry for Environmental Protection. For the Environment Ministry, the draft law is a significant milestone in bringing Israel closer to fulfillment of its obligations to the OECD, with regard to registering and assessing chemical risks. So Ginger, first of all, could you talk us through the key elements that the draft law will introduce once it's approved? Hi Kate, sure. So the draft would establish first and foremost a national inventory of industrial chemicals. This will require companies to notify the government of the chemicals that they import or produce in Israel. This will mostly be, it will require some high level basic data like chemical properties, quantity and uses. It's not set in stone yet what the threshold will be for substances to be included in the inventory. The draft tentatively says 10 tons per year, but it also includes sort of a caveat that because Israel is a small country and even larger sort of blocks like the European Union have a threshold of one ton per year, Um, So the draft leaves room to lower that threshold to one ton per year for some or all substances. So that's something to keep an eye out for in any subsequent drafts or discussions, um, what the threshold is for the inventory. Then once the inventory is up and running, uh, the government will go through that and propose a list of around 100 priority chemicals. And these will be subject to a more detailed risk assessment process. Now, this list will be public, publicly consulted on according to the Ministry of Environmental Protection. It doesn't give detailed, uh, it doesn't give a detailed process for how 
the ministry expects to prioritize those substances. But sort of generally, it says that if a substance has a high risk level, it's widely used in Israel, and it has a high potential for exposure to the public and to sensitive populations, um, it will probably need to be to be subjected to a risk assessment. Now, manufacturers and importers of these substances, when they do the risk assessment, they'll need to provide more detailed health and safety studies. And then the government will decide on risk management measures. And this could mean restricting the use of the chemicals or exposure to them. Again, it's not really detailed in this draft. Um, one other thing to note is that the government, when it's looking at risk management measures, it says it will also look at other jurisdictions. So whether there's already risk management measures for a substance in Europe or the US, for example. So that's something to keep, keep in mind if a substance is subject to restrictions or other measures elsewhere. Okay, thank you, Ginger. Um, I understand that the Ministry is currently reviewing local comments received in response to the publication of the draft law last October. Um, can you just talk us through the next steps and, and what the timeline is from, from here on? Of course. So that's right. They are reviewing comments from the local consultation right now. And they, I've heard from the Ministry that they're waiting until after Israel has legislative elect elections, and this is scheduled for March. So they're waiting until after those elections, and then they will present the draft law to a ministerial committee for legislation. This is part of the government's executive body, and it reviews bills before publication. Then the law is expected to be approved by the end of this year and enter into force uh, on the 1st of March, 2023. Then there will be an 18 month sort of transition period where manufacturers and importers will have until uh, the 1st of September 2024 to register their chemicals in that inventory. And then the subsequent stages of prioritization, risk assessment and risk management would begin. Okay, thanks again, Ginger. Now let's turn to the US, uh, where following uh, President Joe Biden's decision to direct the US EPA and other federal agencies to review regulations and policies from the last four years, uh, including several under the Toxic Substances Control Act or TOSCA, Chemical Watch has been talking to legal experts on how this process could play out. While the consensus is that the new administration's directive to scrutinize the procedures underlying TOSCA risk evaluations could have big implications for the future of substance assessment at the US EPA, exactly how those changes might develop remains uh, an open question. So Terry, um, can you tell us what you're hearing? You know, what's, what's the message from the experts that you have talked to? Yeah, hi Kate. So uh, our editor Kelly Franklin and I have talked with several legal experts and others on, you know, what Tosca risk evaluations might look like going forward, and specifically how the assessment process might change uh, following sort of a EPA under the Biden administration following a review of that 2017 rule that currently governs the risk evaluation process. And certainly there's an expectation that EPA's chemical risk evaluations are likely to address more conditions of use and rely less on the presumption that other statutes already adequately address releases to water, air, or elsewhere in the environment. 
the Biden-Harris administration has also put a lot of emphasis on environmental justice issues. And it's possible future evaluations could include a consideration of aggregate exposures to substances, as well as communities and populations that have been disproportionately impacted by exposures to toxic substances in the past. Now, like you said, exactly how this might play out is a little up in the air at the moment. The, uh, the EPA has some flexibility under its current Tosca risk evaluation rule. It can make some interpretive changes, which are relatively easy, uh, such as whether or not it should consider impurities in its chemical reviews. But if the administration and ultimately the EPA decide that they want to make more substantive procedural changes to the Tosca risk evaluation process, uh, the agency would have to go through the formal rulemaking process to change or repeal the rule. And as we've said in past episodes here, that's a process that can take years. Um, but if the EPA does decide to go this route and make more substantive changes to the evaluation process, uh, it's likely that it could look back and incorporate some of the procedures that the Obama administration set out when uh, it, the rule was first proposed just before the Trump administration came in. Uh, one example here is the scope of the applications that are evaluated. Uh, the rule as proposed back in 2016 called for the EPA to evaluate all uses when assessing a chemical. But in the final rule, uh, which was then issued under the Trump administration, um, uh, it says, uh, now says that the agency would instead identify circumstances that constitute the conditions of use for each chemical substance uh, and look at that on a case-by-case -case basis. So we, one thing that we could see is the EPA go back and uh, update or change the rule to codify that requirement um, to evaluate all uses in their risk assessments. Of course, any substantive changes to the rule could be met with litigation. Uh, the American Chemistry Council, for example, has said that that 2017 risk evaluation rule, that's in line with the spirit of Tosca. So there could be pushback from industry or other groups if the EPA does decide to make significant changes to that risk evaluation process. Okay, thanks, Terry. Now, the EPA recently finished its first 10 TOSCA risk evaluations under the rule, and it's starting the process for more than uh, 20 more substances. Um, how will these potential changes affect the completed evaluations and those that are underway? Yeah, that's right. So any changes to the risk evaluation process could have implication for, like you said, nearly three dozen substances in various stages of review or risk management, as well as uh, future evaluations down the road. So far, we have those 10 completed risk evaluations, uh, another 20 high priority substance uh, for which the EPA has already scoped out what the reviews will look like and another handful of substances where industry has requested uh, an evaluation. Now with the, that, the last two groups, those 20 plus substances, where the evaluations are in their early stages, any new interpretations or rule changes that the EPA makes uh, are very likely to have an impact on these. So risk evaluations overall can take three to three and a half years uh, or, or potentially more. Um, so there certainly is time to incorporate any changes that the EPA makes. And as we noted earlier, that could mean that the EPA looks at more conditions of use, aggregate exposures, impacted communities, et cetera. 
It's uh, another story, though, with those first 10 substances that already have completed evaluations. Under TSCA, after the EPA completes a risk evaluation for a substance, it has one year to propose a rule to mitigate any unreasonable risks that it identified, and then one more year after that to finalize the rule. So that means the EPA is already on the clock to issue risk management proposals for those first 10 chemicals. And stopping to reopen or supplement those already completed evaluations could then take time and resources away, not only from the risk management process, but also the evaluations for those next 20 plus substances that are currently starting the risk assessment process. But the EPA may not have a choice but to review at least some of those first 10 completed risk evaluations. Four of those are already in litigation and a court ruling or a potential EPA settlement with uh, the parties bringing the lawsuits could ultimately force the agency to at least partially reopen uh, those risk evaluations. Okay, thanks very much, Terry. Um, you've mentioned uh, litigation a couple of times. Uh, can you tell us a little more about the current court challenges and what is at issue in them? Sure. So uh, we have four of the first 10 risk evaluations are currently being challenged in court, and that's for methylene chloride, HBCD, 1,4-dioxane, and asbestos. The plaintiffs bringing each action say the EPA has underestimated the risks from those substances, and they want a federal court to, to review them. So the challenge to the methylene chloride risk evaluation, that one's the furthest along. Um, and it's not that far along <laughs> in itself. Uh, just last week, the plaintiffs in the case filed their first briefs with the court, really kind of laying out their arguments. So we have the most details so far on that case and what the plaintiffs are looking for. The, the groups challenging the methylene chloride evaluation include several NGOs, uh, also the AFL-CIO, which is the largest federation of labor unions in the U.S., um, and there are attorneys general from 11 U.S. states, as well as New York City and Washington, D.C., that have challenged just that evaluation. So the, the brief filed by the attorneys general, that focuses quite a bit on the EPA's decision to evaluate risk on a case-by-case -case or use-by-use -use determination. Uh, in the final risk evaluation for methylene chloride, the EPA looked at 53 different applications or conditions of use for the solvent, and they said that 47 of those presented an unreasonable risk, meaning they now have to undergo risk mitigation measures, but six of those conditions of use did not meet that threshold. So, the EPA, according to the EPA, there's no need to regulate those uses, which includes some uses in manufacturing and processing, among others. The state attorneys general, however, they argue that this use-by-use -use determination violates the TSCA statute uh, and its mandate to comprehensively evaluate a substance. So that is, does the substance present an unreasonable risk or does it not? Now, if the court agrees with the state's argument here, it could order the EPA to revise that 2017 TSCA risk evaluation rule and require that more holistic review or risk evaluation. Uh, in addition, both the state attorneys general and the NGOs uh, in their briefs, they argue that EPA's evaluation also overestimates the use and protection afforded by personal protective equipment. Now, if the court agrees with that argument as well, it potentially could change how the EPA has to incorporate 
the use of PPE in its evaluations, and whether and how much PPE protects individuals uh, from chemical exposures. So these court actions could ultimately force the agency to act regardless of what they decide after reviewing the previous administration's um, steps already taken. Now, one quick caveat here, uh, if the EPA decides that the plaintiffs in these cases are correct and that its risk evaluation process does indeed need to change, the EPA could seek to just settle the case and say to the court, you know what, we agree with the NGOs and the states here, and we'd like the court to dismiss this case and we'll agree to make certain changes. Um, the court would still have to approve such a settlement request, but we've seen a hint of that already with uh, the recent rule on science transparency. Uh, NGOs, some industry groups, and, and certainly the Biden-Harris administration uh, didn't really like that rule, saying it could actually prevent the EPA from using certain studies. Well, uh, NGOs had sued to, to stop that rule, and a federal court just last week put a hold on, uh, put the rule on hold. And then the EPA, just at the very end of January, uh, then stepped in and asked the court, you know what, why don't you go ahead and just vacate the rule? So in other words, with some of these legal cases, the EPA's new leadership could say they just don't want to defend uh, the agency's past actions in court. Okay, thanks very much, Terry. Now, finally, let's turn to food contact materials, or FTMs, which is the subject of one of 10 in-depth global outlook reports uh, prepared by the Chemical Watch team and due to be published over the course of the next few weeks. The global outlook reports take a look at the key developments expected across all regions on a variety of subjects uh, during 2021. Developments highlighted in our global outlook report for FCMs include draft food safety standards outlining migration limits for heavy metals and other substances which are expected to progress this year in China, an updated FCM positive list in Japan, a revived PFAS bill in the US that could see action expanded to cover food contact materials, and a positive list of FCM additives implemented in Brazil. In Europe, meanwhile, a consultation is underway on a European Commission inception impact assessment for the long-awaited revision of food contact material legislation. Now, Nick, um, can you tell us more about this inception impact assessment and update us on the long-awaited changes in Europe? Yes, Kate, thanks for that. Um, food contact materials in Europe are regulated by various pieces of legislation that have been described as outdated and full of holes. The most important law is Regulation uh, 1935 of 2004, so it's almost 17 years old. And um, this established a harmonised legal EU framework and set out the general principles for all food contact materials. But alongside this, there are specific measures uh, for individual groups of FCMs, for example, for ceramic materials and regenerated cellulose film. Uh, the most comprehensive of these is Commission Regulation Number 10 of 2011, which set out a list of substances that are permitted in the manufacture of plastic FCMs in the EU. In the EU. Now, it's long been anticipated that the EU, EU would move to update and streamline the FCM rules. And um, on the 18th of December, 
uh, last year, just before Christmas, the Commission opened a consultation on a draft inception impactment assessment, an IIA, for the revision of FCM legislation. Now, the Commission conducts an IIA on deciding the potential impact of an initiative or evaluation on the economy, environment, or society to decide whether it's significant or not. Now, the, the draft, this draft looks at a proposal for a regulation that, among other things, would include a three-tier system to prioritize the most hazardous chemicals used in FCMs. It would use a generic risk assessment for tier one substances. It would incorporate essential use criteria into the assessment. It would draw up rules governing the mixture effects of different chemicals. It would streamline and consolidate enforcement, and it would shift the focus of assessments to final materials away from the starting substances. The consultation on the document ran until last Friday, the 29th of July. Uh, and now, after looking at that, the Commission plans a 12-week internet-based public consultation in the second quarter of this year, targeted consultation activities for specific stakeholder groups, and a set of stakeholder working groups. Additionally, an IIA is currently underway on a revision of the rules on lead, cadmium, and possibly other materials in ceramic and vitreous FCMs. DG Sante told a recent conference that it expects to carry out a public consultation and hold a webinar on the subject in the second or third quarter of this year. Okay, thanks very much for that update, Meg. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Um, so thank you again to Nick, Ginger and Terry uh, for sharing their insight into today's stories with us. And thank you to you, our audience, for listening to today's episode. If you would like to find out more about the topics from today's discussion, including the Global Outlook reports for 2021, please head over to the Chemical Watch website at chemicalwatch.com. Until next week, goodbye. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. The Chemical Watch Podcast.